Well, it's been kind of a journey. We've been in Colossians now, if you can believe it, since July 6th. And so nearing five months to work through this book. And uh, we didn't take very many detours. We just worked verse by verse. And uh, it's been a real blessed time. I've been contemplating how to wrap up this book. Uh, whether I should do kind of a survey and, and wrap up these final few verses that we have left, or whether I should do the final verses and then wrap up uh, with kind of an overview at the end. And uh, that's what I've decided I'm going to do. I'm going to work through these last four verses, and we'll do an overview in the end in a unique way, which you probably don't see very often. Um. So you remember from last week, the Apostle Paul was sending his greetings from Rome to the church that's in Colossae, and he was mentioning all these friends of his that were working with him in ministry, as we spoke about a few minutes ago. We had Tychicus and Onesimus and Epaphras and Demas and, and, a, and a whole group that he worked with to further the gospel, to preach Christ, as our choir was singing. So... Now we have Paul turning his greetings towards the recipients. His final greetings to Colossae and a neighboring town of Laodicea. Laodicea, as you might remember, is about 8 or 10 miles to the east, or excuse me, the west of Colossae. And then about another 90 to 100 miles to the west of that is Ephesus. And then about another 900 miles by sea is Rome where Paul is writing this letter. So, as tra- not as the bird flies, but as they would travel in those days, we're looking at roughly a thousand miles for this letter to travel. So there had been a church that was started in Laodicea as well. Um, it's probably called Laodicea Bible Church, I would expect. And Paul has been briefed about Laodicea by Epaphras, who we've talked about quite a bit. And we we learn from verses 12 and 13 that Epaphras has had a deep concern for the churches that are in Colossae and Laodicea. So Paul's been all briefed about Laodicea and probably neighboring Hierapolis as well. So in any rites, you'll see in verse 14, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nymphos in the church that is in his house house. Some of your translations might say nympha and her house. Uh, There is in the Greek only a small little accent mark that would distinguish between the masculine and feminine. So they are uncertain with the ancient manuscripts exactly how that originally looked, but uh, it was either nympha or nymphos, and it was in his or her house. For their part, Colossae was supposed to go to Laodicea after reading this and greet the church that is in Nympha's house. Churches in this era were, you might expect, organizationally very different from what we see today. In fact, our prayer life group that meets on the first Wednesday of each month might be a little more symptomatic of what a New Testament church looked like in the early years. They would meet at someone's home, They would find a place that's comfortable to sit down, probably. Maybe it would be in an upper room where a person with a larger house would be able to seat a number of people. They'd likely share a communion meal. And then someone would open up the scriptures before or after some singing. 
And they would talk about how those scriptures related to Jesus Christ. So they would meet in a home. Now, remember as we talked about earlier this summer, these churches did not have the completed canon of scripture yet. They didn't have a a book like we have with, with every text and every epistle and the four gospels and the Old Testament all bound nicely together. Um... Probably none of the Gospels were completed yet at this time. This is very early. We're looking at about 52 AD. But it's very likely that they had quotes from Jesus' ministry uh, passed along by the apostles uh, themselves. It's very likely that they knew about the rich young ruler. It's very likely that they taught a lot of the parables that were passed along as the apostles testified about Jesus Christ. It's very likely that they knew very well the account of the prodigal son. They also had access to the Old Testament. Most of these towns had synagogues with the sacred writings. The Psalms and the Proverbs were very influential in the early church. And that combined with the Old Testament writings, they had those scriptures. But what they had received is not yet what we've received. They were limited in some ways They were waiting to receive these epistles. So this this church, we we would see they would assemble in a house. The church is not a house. We see in in these scriptures that they meet in a house. Church is never used to refer to a building in scripture. This Greek term, uh, ecclesia, is what it is. It means the people. The church is people. It's, it's us. It's not a building. It's not a structure. The early, the early church was so poor that they didn't have dedicated facilities like we're blessed to have here to invite people to and air conditioning and these other things so they would find a place to meet. But wherever they would meet, whether it was an outdoor assembly, as, uh, as many we know did through history, in warmer climates and nicer climates, as meeting in homes, wherever they would meet, there would be the church. Here they met in Laodicea in Nympha's house. The same is true in Colossae. We learn from uh, the book of Philemon in verse 2, it says the church met in Philemon's house. So this building that that we're in here now, it's not a church. I know we call it a church. It's not the church. But we need to take a moment and think about our terminology here so that we're processing things appropriately. This is the building where the church, where the body of Port St. Lucie, the church comes together to meet. The church is people. That said, and this building is very important. Don't get me wrong. A lot of ministry goes on here. It's very important to have a building. I think it it works very well. I think it's appropriate that we share uh, a building and work to keep up a building and have a nice place to invite people to and to facilitate all kinds of ministry. But this is not the Lord's temple. This is not the, the house, quote-unquote, of God. And I'll tell you why we need to acknowledge that in a moment. What is, what is the Lord's temple? The Lord's temple is your body. The Lord's temple is your 
your body where the Holy Spirit, if you are a believer, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your body. And Scripture tells us that your body is the temple of God. God taught us in the Old Testament through the temple and through His presence there for a period that He was holy, that He was separate and He was special. It was a shadow of the things that were to come, we learn from Colossians. There were a lot of things in the Old Testament that were a shadow of what we would see fulfilled fully in Christ. But the Lord's temple is our body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is in you, whom you have from God, and you are no longer your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, the Apostle commands. The problem I'd like to expose here with with this high church ecclesiology, which is just simply a way to express what we've come to experience as as the cathedral churches. This high church, this this, um, idea that this physical structure is the church of God. The problem that comes from this, as we study the church, that's all that ecclesiology means. We study the church, the body of Christ. What, What does it look like? How does it function? The problem with this is that we have made the building a holy place. We've made the building a holy place in in and of itself. The problem is we haven't made our bodies sometimes, the true temple of God, a holy place. We've made a location, a, a place that we go, a holy place, but where the Holy Spirit dwells in our bodies, sometimes we make that a not holy place. So you can see how this understanding that, that the church is a building can take away from our, our understanding, our assertion that our body is really where God dwells. Our body is where the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And this is the temple that we're encouraged throughout Scripture not to defile. But there's times, you know, we'll come in and we'll hear nice music playing and we'll, we'll have an organ down low and other things and we'll walk in and it's like, wow, we're, we're really in a holy place. I love this place. But your body is where God is dwelling inside of you. So it, it's big, become, um, become common to call a church the temple of God, but the body is the temple of God. That's why they meet in a house. That's why they're at Nympha's house. Listen to Stephen. He's the first martyr of the church. This would be in Acts chapter 7. And uh, persecution is starting to arise. And Stephen is the first man to lose his life. He has been one of the, uh, the very reliable, trustworthy men who has who's gone to div- help divide up the food amongst the widows and, and those who needed and he was well respected, scripture tells us. And he came into an occasion where he was challenging the leaders in Jerusalem. This is in Acts chapter 7, verse 46. And this is the statement he makes before the Jews, immediately before they stone him. He says, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. 
But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, Stephen adds, the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands. As the prophet Isaiah says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool of my feet. What kind of house shall you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my rest or relaxation, says the Lord? Was it not my own hand which made all these things? So God's saying all those bricks and everything you're using, it was my own hand, those stones. It was my own hand that made all those things. And you're building something for me? He continues on and he says, this is what really gets him. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just what your fathers did. Told them they're resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing what your fathers did. They proceeded to stone him and kill him at that point. Stephen accused them of resisting the Holy Spirit. In effect, the way they did that was by resisting God taking up residence in their hearts. They were resisting God to come into their lives and to allow themselves to be born again. They were stiffened against the Lord. They did not want to hear about Jesus Christ. They would rather have a physical structure which was still still present in Jerusalem. They loved that structure. They didn't want to offer this structure, the body. So we find that Nympha's home is a place where they would meet and they would assemble and they'd worship Jesus Christ and they would offer their bodies to the Lord. Next, we look at verse 16. Paul says, when this letter is read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So we have three letters in play here, as I kind of noted for you last week. The slave Onesimus, remember, has a letter that he is carrying to a man named Philemon, who lives in Colossae. That was Onesimus' master. So he was taking the letter that we know of now as Philemon, and that was going to be delivered by Tychicus and Onesimus to Philemon. The second letter is the one that we've been studying since July 6th, and that is the one to Colossae. This letter is one that he says, make sure you read it in Laodicea. Make sure when you're done with this that you have this also read in Laodicea. So we've got a private letter to Philemon, which Paul's going to allow Philemon to decide if he is going to share that after he reads it. We find out later that Philemon does that. He circulates it among the church, and it exists to this day. We've got Colossians that was written specifically to Colossae. It means it was addressed to them. So the couriers are taking this letter to Colossae for them to read first. I mean, it's addressed to Colossae. They aren't circulating it yet, because the recipient ought to be able to read their own mail. So they get to read their mail first, and he says, share it back with Laodicea. But we also find that it's obvious there is a third letter that is sitting in Laodicea as Paul, at, at this time when they're reading this letter. This is long rumored to be the lost letter of Laodicea. Uh, critics say, obviously, Paul must have written this letter to Laodicea, and... Um, Somehow it got lost, 
And Time Magazine and Newsweek have been trying to find this letter now, and they're, they're just certain that somehow this letter is going to spring up somewhere, and it, it's going to completely refute everything else that we've learned in the Bible, this hidden letter to Laodicea. Everyone loves a conspiracy theory. Um, no, there are no missing letters from the Bible. I know we all love a conspiracy theory, but I personally believe that the letter that is sitting in Laodicea right now, as they're reading this, is the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, There are a couple reasons that you might be willing to accept that explanation. Uh, First, we know there are no missing letters. The Bible is not missing anything. We haven't been existing for 2,000 years now, learning about Jesus Christ, and somehow there's, you know, a Da Vinci Code. There's something missing, a, a missing piece. No. Um... We don't need more help figuring all of this out. The scriptures are very clear. We know who Christ is. Uh, There are no missing links. Uh, We find that to be absolutely true by uh, Jesus' brother Jude. He writes in his letter, uh, earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all handed down for the saints. It was once for all handed down. It was a completed faith. It's not something waiting for another chapter or another book or another prophet. Uh, we also find out uh, everyone's very familiar with the end of Revelation. If you add to this book, if you take away from this book, all the curses of this book are going to be added unto you. We're not waiting for the letter of Laodicea or any other letter to be found. Um, this is another reason that I, I think Ephesians is likely uh, the best bet. Uh, when you lay it side by side with Colossians and you read them both, very similar in content. Ephesians has a few more things. It's a little longer letter. But when you read the topics, you're like, wow, it's almost like they were written um, at the same time. Uh, the closings are very similar. Uh, they're written, written in the same imprisonment. We know that. The style is similar to the letters. And at the end of Ephesians, it says, just like it does in Colossians that Tychicus is going to be the one delivering that letter as well. So the same courier is taking both of these letters, Ephesians and Colossians. Uh, Tychicus is his name. So how, how did all this go down? We're wondering, how, how did this happen? Uh, this is how I think it probably occurred. Epaphras, we know, is running into a lot of adversity in Colossae. They're having threatening doctrines that can... Uh, can harm the church. They have an incomplete Bible because all the scriptural letters hadn't been written yet. And he goes to Rome, as we talked about when we opened this book, to talk to Paul a thousand miles away. And he wants to get clarification on all these items uh, that he can bring back to Colossae. At the same time, Paul's like, well, that's, that's a really good idea. I've got some other things to say as well. I'm going to write another letter called Ephesians, and I need to talk to Philemon because Onesimus is here with me as well, and we need to get these letters sent out. I I think they were all written within days of one another. Um, And that they then hatch this plan that Tychicus and Onesimus are going to take these letters from a thousand miles away in Rome. They're going to stop in Ephesus on the way. That would be the closest port as they land in Turkey. And so they're going to travel 900 miles to Ephesus. They've got the letter to the Ephesians. They're going to drop it off at the Ephesian church. But since that's 100 miles away, they make another copy of it. 
So they have another copy that they carry with them down to Laodicea. Possibly other places it doesn't say, but we know for sure Laodicea. And they drop off that letter called To the Saints Who Are in Ephesus in Laodicea. And since it's so close by, just a few miles down the road, Tychicus and Onesimus say, hey, let's, let's go on. We will uh, take this other letter to Colossae and to Philemon, and we'll take it to the Colossians. So they left it behind to be studied or read aloud in Laodicea while they took the letter addressed to Colossae down the road. I don't believe there was ever a letter written to Laodicea. It's just, it's my opinion. I don't think there was ever a missing letter. There are a couple things we know for sure, though, from verse 16, if you'll look. The plan to leave the letter in Laodicea before proceeding to Colossae was hatched in Rome. We know that because Paul wrote these letters, and the instructions were given out weeks earlier in Rome when he's writing this, before they ever land in Ephesus or anywhere in Turkey. So Paul and them are, are working through how this is going to proceed. They, are, uh, they talk through this in their team, and they say, well, you're going to go here first, and you're going to go to Laodicea, and you're going to leave this copy of this letter in Laodicea, and then you are going to go on, Paul says to Tychicus and Onesimus, you're going to go on to Colossians and take the other letters, and then tell them to exchange them back and forth. Had to be that way because Paul wrote it all ahead of time. What, what do we learn from that? Well, one thing, Paul believed in ministry planning. Paul thought things through. He worked with his team, and they, they cognitively thought of ways to proceed with ministry. It, it wasn't haphazard in any way. Um, this was all, all decided before anyone ever left Rome. Uh, they didn't just fly by the seat of their pants. Now, I know that, that some people say that we should just fly, you know, live by the Spirit and and just do what uh, you know comes naturally, and we'll kind of see what happens. Paul didn't operate like that. He laid out plans. He, he worked with other men and decided in advance how things were going to proceed. We find, we find that a lot in our church, by the way. We've got a board, uh, Pastor Weiler and, and myself meet with, and we come together. Board usually meets once a month unless something uh, a crisis comes up or something important that needs to be addressed. And they get together and they plan. We plan. And we talk about ministry opportunities and we think about, we project time periods in advance. How long would it take to do this? Do we have the facilities to do it? Do people really want to do it? That's one thing we have to remember about ministries. There's a lot of good ministry ideas out there. We hear stuff all the time uh, that we'd love to do. But we have to decide whether we have the resources or the manpower. A lot of times there's good ideas, but just no one wants to follow through. You can open up. We'd love to open up something. Let's say, for instance, uh, from time to time we talk about a uh, food pantry. I know a lot of people really want to do something here locally in this area of town that's, that's substantial, that is, that is uh, a benefit to the people who are uh, hurting financially so they'll have a Thanksgiving meal. We've seen people repeat that thought. What we need to do is plan through. Do we have the room? Do we have people who will actually man it? You know, once you have this, these resources, you have to have someone who will give a few hours of their week to, to want to be open there with it. So we plan through these things. And we, we find out where our skills are before moving forward. And, and this is very similar to what Paul does. He, he believed in planning. The board here doesn't just show up 
uh, on Sunday to see what happens. <laughs> they don't. We love what happens. But uh, I got to hand it, hand it to those, uh, those men there and, and Pastor Weiler especially. They, they work really hard. I appreciate them. Uh, so we're planning for the future today in Port St. Lucie Bible Church as they did back then. And uh, we're very excited about what the future holds at this church. Very excited. And we anticipate that we'll be adding ministry capability. We'll be uh, doing things that we haven't seen previously, a little at a time. We, we see a lot of people out here that are doing outreach in ways that they haven't done it for, for years, going knocking on doors, holding street signs, um, directing people to church connection cards, talking to people with more vigilance. And uh, we're really excited that God is going to use all of that effort and energy that uh, God's moved in your hearts in order to glorify the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So, got off on a little tangent there. We're planning. We're planning for the future. And the future has a lot of wonderful things in store. Christ is in the business of building His church. A second impression that we gain from verse 16 as you look, this is very important, especially after... uh, reading what Peter thinks about Paul's letters, that they're scripture. In verse 16 it says that Paul's letters were designed to be circular. That means they were designed to be handed to other cities. They, they were not just to Colossae. They weren't just to Laodicea, Ephesus, Thessalonica. They weren't just to that city. You, you hear that sometimes in, in public criticism of scripture. Well, you know, that Paul really said that, but that's really only the city of Corinth that he wanted them to abstain from a certain behavior of one kind or another. No. These were circulated. He wanted the Colossian letter to go to Laodicea. He wanted the letter uh, to the Ephesians that I would propose to go to Colossae. He wanted them to come to us. He wanted the letters to be circulated to everyone. It's the word of God. They need to be circulated everywhere. He's writing to us just as... He wrote to Colossae. These letters are could be addressed to Port St. Lucie Bible Church. It takes a little time sometimes to understand the historical context. What was he saying? What was going on? But the letters are to us today. In verse 17, it says, Say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. We, we don't know a whole lot about Archippus. We, he is mentioned in the Philemon letter. Philemon, of course, hosted the church, we know there. The letter to Philemon seems to lend the idea that Archippus is possibly a pastor. It is possible. We don't know that for certain, but uh, a lot of people, since he is kind of included in the greeting to the house that meets in Philemon's house, Archippus is included there, he must have a role there that he is serving uh, as a leader of some some kind, some think a pastor. If that's true, it seems that Archippus was thinking about throwing in the towel. He was thinking about maybe this just is too hard. He's thinking about, boy, there's a lot of criticism coming from the neighboring ideas of thought from the people who are meeting in this other religion down the road and they're whispering in the ears of our people and they're talking about different gods and angels and all kinds of stuff that we've read, uh, other mediators that we covered in chapter 2. And 
He said, you know what, this is, this is hard. Paul had to address him specifically. Out of all the people there, he had to address him specifically. So he thought about throwing in the towel. But then again, maybe he wasn't a pastor. Maybe he was a choir leader. Or perhaps he was a youth director or a nursery worker. Maybe he was an instrumentalist. He played instruments. Maybe he was someone who volunteered with the treasury. Maybe he was a Sunday school teacher. We don't know. See, that's, that's the beauty of Scripture when it knows exactly when to remain silent. If, if Paul would have written, tell Archippus, that seminary president, to make sure that he heeds his ministry and fulfills it, we would have all been off the hook. We would have said, well, I'm, I'm no seminary president. I don't need to. This doesn't, this doesn't apply to me. No. Paul leaves it nonspecific, so it basically applies to everyone. Just insert your name here. Whatever ministry it is that you've been given, you need to take heed and fulfill it. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. It seems that nobody recognizes your extra effort. Archippus probably felt that way. They didn't realize that he was always the last one leaving, the last one to lock the doors, the last one to clean up, the last one to head home. No one noticed. That's okay. People aren't necessarily supposed to notice. We've been told by Jesus that our Father who sees what is done in secret is eventually going to reward you openly. It's all right. Paul says, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. It's very important. Every ministry is very important. It's not just one person. Verse 18, we find the final verse here. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. We know that Paul, from some of his other letters, often used a stenographer to write for him. He would dictate the letters, and uh, he would have someone else writing them down. We don't know if this is because at certain times his hands were in chains, if it made it difficult. There's all kinds of speculation we don't know. But he does say here that he's made a habit of writing the final greeting section with his own hand. Um, It's a distinguishing mark, he says in one of his letters, uh, that it is written, the greeting at the end is in his own hand. He's also asked him to remember that he's imprisoned under house arrest. This is the first major time he's imprisoned. He was probably thrown in jail multiple times. But he was imprisoned in Rome for the first time here. It would have been permissible for a Roman citizen like Paul if he were not, uh, had not committed a violent crime in order to stay in a house under house arrest. There's one caveat with that. If you're going to stay in a house, you're going to have to have the money in order to pay for that house, for your food and anything else that goes on uh, at that home. So he's telling them uh, to help him afford for his care. So the churches would then send back financial support to, to care for Paul as he is uh, waiting for his trial. You say, thankfully, after this imprisonment, Paul was ultimately released. What appears to have happened is the people who had accused him in Jerusalem before they sent him off to go 
face this imprisonment uh, themselves failed to show up. They didn't feel like taking the time to go, didn't want to testify, forgot about him, thought that they had ridded him of Jerusalem, thought that he's in the hands of the Romans now and no one was going to make that long journey from Jerusalem over to Rome. So in the end it appears as though he was released because there was no one to accuse him any further at this first imprisonment. We also know, if you, if you look into Philemon, he tells Philemon, prepare a place for me because I intend on being able to visit you soon. So it's very likely that uh, he was able to go at some point. We don't know, but at some point he was able to actually visit this town. So uh, it, uh, we know he got released. He ultimately, ultimately ends the letter with the same phrase that he started with, grace be with you. That's where we're at today. Grace be with you. This was the most important thing to Paul was the grace of God. We think about it, we toss around this word grace. We're like, what is grace? We have a definition, the unmerited favor of God. It's free. Grace is free. What is grace? Grace is everything that God has given us that he has given us its good, everything that he has, the rain, the sun, everything is grace. We have, as Pastor Weiler said earlier, what do we have to offer him? But thanks. God gives grace. Grace is ultimately expressed in everything good that we experience. Believers and unbelievers all experience some level of grace. There's a general level of grace where the sun rises, sun sets, rain falls, crops grow. And everyone benefits from God's goodness. But there's one other way in grace that is more important. The grace that he wants to be with each one of us today is the grace that is available, the free forgiveness through Jesus Christ, his only son. God wants you to experience the grace of God. What would that mean? That would mean you would understand that you're a sinner. You'd understand that you are indebted in a debt you can't pay. That even though you try to do the best you can, that you try to be a good person, you try to help your neighbor, that in the end, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner too. And what God has done in His grace is saying, I don't want that, those individuals, anyone here, to be separated today from my son, from me, and He's offered His grace through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. So basically that entails is Christ came and lived a life that you did not live. He lived a sinless life. He lived a perfect life, an obedient life. We lived a life of sin and disobedience that does not deserve heaven. So Christ did what you and I cannot do. He then offered himself up in grace on a cross to be, to be mocked, to be spat upon, to be crucified to be hated, to be despised and rejected, and then nailed to a cross after being beaten, nailed through his hands and through his feet, and ultimately pierced in his side, crowns on his head. That's grace. After he died, they put him in the ground, covered him up. Three days later, he rose. Seen by over 500 people at one time seen by each and every one of the apostles. It said in the gospel account 
one of the gospel accounts that dead bodies came out of graves because death could not contain him and it It even impacted other people that were dead in the grave, probably dead saints from the Old Testament who were believers, and they rose as well and followed him on to glory. That's where I want to be. I want to be with Christ in glory. I want to accept the grace of God. I've done that. If you have not ever contemplated all these things, if you've not understood you are separated from God and there's only one way, Acts 4.12 says there is salvation in no one else. There's no other way under heaven has been given among men by which we must be saved. I would invite you today to put your faith in Jesus Christ and receive the grace of God. We don't have a time for a recap. I think what's needed to be said is said. I'm going to pray and uh, we'll sing a song.